Hey there, thanks for jumping on uh, our podcast and taking a listen to our Bible study that we've been working through. And um, this is actually kind of going to be going back. Um, a few weeks ago we were going through a study on Bibliology, and it was a three-part series. And we recorded the first two, and the last one didn't get recorded. And I had a number of people that came and had asked me about that. And, um, and so I decided to kind of go back and to make a recording, uh, because I believe this may be the most important part of the three-part series that we went through when it came to bibliology. And uh, if we didn't record this, if we didn't uh, put this together, uh, I feel like it really did a disservice to everything else that we learned and left a lot of uh, really loose ends. And so I wanted to go back and really do a look specifically at this third part, uh, when it comes to bibliology, the study of God's Word, the study of the Bible. And this last part that we're going to look at is the manuscripts. And I know that may sound boring at first, but I think you'll find this very interesting as we talk about the different manuscripts that were used uh, to compose the Word of God that we have today. So as we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in uh, to the study tonight. And I believe it's going to be a huge help to us. So let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight and the opportunity you give us to be able to open your word and to study it. I pray now that you would, Lord, remove blinders on some people's eyes. I pray that for others that you would soften hearts. I pray, Lord, that for all of us, God, we would just grow by your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the truths that we can learn from it. I pray, God, that you would use this time in a powerful and a passionate way. And I pray, Lord, that this would add so much um, depth and so much um, just knowledge of you and your word in this brief study that we're going to look at tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the study on manuscripts and biblical manuscripts, the Bible, um, could go on. We could, we could do um, a great deal of time spent on this. Um, but we're going to try to condense it down to here for just a few moments. There's been numerous books that have been written on the subject, and uh, one of uh, the ones that I have spent a great deal of time referencing uh, specifically is a book uh, in, by uh, Dr. David Sorensen. It's entitled, Neither Oldest Nor Best, Neither Oldest Nor Best. And I would encourage you to pick up a copy. It really goes in depth onto the study that we're going to be looking at tonight um, and will help to shed some light on some of these things that we're going to be referencing as I will not be going as deep as what we could, um, but I believe this will be a help to us. The first thing that we're going to look at tonight is there are prime, two primary streams all translations come from, two primarily primary streams. Now, these two streams are called by many different names. And so that first one that we're going to talk about is the received text. The received text. That uh, received text goes by many names. It, it can go by, the, and they're all interchangeable for the most part, but uh, known as the traditional text, the preserved text, the Byzantine text, the majority text, the Antiochian text, the Syrian text, the Textus Receptus, the Western text, and the TR. Those are some of the primary names that it's known by, and I think it's important for us to understand that whenever it's referred to by one of these things, it's referring to the same thing, so the received text. The second is the critical text, the critical text. So you have the received text, and then the other side you have the critical text. The critical text is known by many names as well. The eclectic text, minority text, the Egyptian text, the Alexandrian text, the Westcott and Hort text, the Nestle Island text, 
and the UBS text. And so there's a number of different names for both of these, but for our purposes tonight, we'll spend the majority of our time referring to them as the received text and the critical text. Okay, so the two main texts that uh, we uh, have all Bible versions uh, have come from today. But as we're going to see, these two are, are different, in fact, and it's important for us to understand that. So very quickly, uh, number two, some historical facts about the texts. And this is important for us to understand. First of all, the critical texts have been perceived to be older. Now, when we did this study originally, I, I did put that as the critical texts are older, but it's important for us to understand that they're perceived to be older older. Uh, but uh, with uh, more investigation that's been going on, and like I said, I'd encourage you to, to reference the book that I mentioned at the beginning, but one of the primary uh, codexes, okay, and that's just the compilation um, of, of the autographs, the compilation of the um, the leaves of the scripture, I guess you'd say, uh, the codex means uh, the, the putting of them together. Um, uh, one of the two codexes that's used for the critical text is known as the Codex Sinaiticus. We'll talk more about that, but it's very possible, and investigations and things today have found that it could have been actually produced as early as 1839 to 1840, and after it was produced, those that came along afterwards came and, and could have attempted to make it actually look older. There's an incredible amount of evidence that proves this, but many would would that hold to the critical text would say, no, 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 that's not true. It's much, much older. Uh, but that's an important thing to, to think about. When it comes to the Codex Sinaiticus, it was discovered by Constantine Tischendorf in St. Catherine's Greek Orthodox Monastery. And what's interesting, um, this this uh, monastery was located at the foot of the traditional, what's perceived as the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Thus, it's Codex Sinaiticus is how it got its name. But he claimed, Tischendorf claimed, to have found the leaves of the manuscript in a wastebasket that was being used for fire kindling for the stove. Now, a leaf of scripture, just so we're all clear, is basically a page. Um, if you were to, to look at a page like we have today, and you have writing on one side, and you have writing on the other side, that's considered one leaf of scripture. We would call that two pages, okay? So each leaf is two pages, uh, a front and a back. But he found uh, leaves of this manuscript, pages of this manuscript in a wastebasket that simply was being used for fire kindling. He claims to have convinced the monastery to allow him to take 43 leaves, or 86 pages at that time, and then he came back later in 1859 and convinced them to loan him the remaining 344 leaves that they had, 688 pages, with the promise to return them which he never did. Kind of an interesting story. Um, he, he took them and, and they were given to him to a uh, museum, but uh, he took them and, and used them to translate uh, from the uh, Sinaiticus, Codex Sinaiticus into the English. So that was the first, uh, one of the two, that, as they say, uh, is older, um, but in fact it really wasn't even referenced until uh, the 1800, mid-1800s, uh, 1850. 18, uh, 1840s, late 1840s. The other one, the Codex Vaticanus, okay, the Codex Vaticanus, you have the Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Vaticanus uh, has been dated to around the 4th century AD. 
which would bring it all way back. I mean, way back to the very beginning of, of you know, in the, some one of the oldest manuscripts that is in existence. However, there are no clear historical records of the Codex Vaticanus until it was registered in the Vatican Library in 1475. That's interesting. It wasn't referenced. It's not, it wasn't perceived to be used until 1475. So even though they would look and say, well, it's much older, uh, there really aren't even any records about it until later. It wasn't referenced. Um, it was registered, rather, in the Vatican Library in 1475, but it wasn't referenced until 1843. Just think about that when a new wave had come along uh, that believed that the original text had been lost and the search needed to begin. And that's really what set Tischendorf uh, uh, off on his quest to find the original manuscripts, if you will, the oldest. In 1843, Tischendorf visited the Vatican Library, the Codex Vaticanus being held in the Vatican, he visited the Vatican Library and was given permission to record a few verses from the Vaticanus. And later in 1867, so that initially 1843, and then in 1867 he was allowed to publish a transcribed edition of the Vaticanus. And so he recorded it and wrote that down, and that was uh, produced by him. Uh, very interesting uh, to, to think about that, that he's the one that, that kind of came up with those things. It was these two texts that uh, Tischendorf took, the Sinaiticus, the Vaticanus, and they found their way, uh, his writing all the way to London, to two men known as Westcott and Hort. And it was these two men who took these two texts, the Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, and produced what we know today as the critical text. He, he took these two, primarily these two, there, there was use of a few others, but primarily these two um, documents, these two um, autographs, um, copies, that he used to produce um, the critical text, and the critical text has been used to produce most of the modern Bible versions that we have today. Now, one thing that's important as we think about uh, the critical text being perceived as older, even if they are as old as what they've been dated or as they've been said to be, one thing to remember is older doesn't necessarily mean better, okay? Um, no, uh, it, it could just mean that it wasn't used. Uh, every original autograph, original copy of the scripture that was written, so the actual paper that Paul took his pen, dipped it into the quill, or one of the scribes dipped into the quill, dipped the, the quill into the ink, and then wrote down those those Greek letters on that page. Every original autograph—that's the original copies, the original autographs that that were actually written by these the Peter and Paul and John—they were all destroyed within 100 years of their writing, all the originals. So everything that exists today is in fact a copy of a copy. And just because some copies are older doesn't mean they're better or more accurate. Uh, and this is important for us to, to understand. Um, I have on my Bible, as I'm recording this, or uh, excuse me, on my shelf in my office, I've got numerous Bibles uh, sitting on my shelf. And as I'm looking over and, and looking at some of them, there I, there I have a couple of Bibles that look like they are brand new, um, but are actually older. And the reason is because they weren't even they weren't used. Whereas I've got some other Bibles that are on here that are much newer, but I've used them much more just for one reason or another. Maybe they were a gift or maybe I just liked something about it and, and I just used it much more than others. And now the pages are falling out and things like that. And while one um, is, is truly is newer, 
than the other, um, you know, and, and if you were to, to actually go into to date the Bibles, I guess you could say, and you'd find that some were from all the way back in the 90s, right, way back in, when, uh, in the 1990s, and, and others were from the, the uh, late, early 2000s, or even uh, the 2000 teens, um, and, or even the 2020s, you, you would find and, and you'd look at them, the truth is, is some of the Bibles that I have are going to deteriorate and are going to probably disappear before the other ones. And uh, while one is older than the other, uh, what it could mean is that one was used and one was not. When it comes to the scriptures, these texts, it could just mean, uh, even if they are actually older, which we've already mentioned, maybe they're not, um, but it could just mean that they just weren't reused. In fact, as we saw, it wasn't until 1475 that the Vaticanus was even referenced, and then in the 1800s, or registered, and then the 1800s that they were actually even used. Important for us to understand that. So the critical texts have been perceived to be older. Um, not only that, the critical texts are fewer. Uh, we've already kind of mentioned this, but the critical text primarily is translated from two primary ones, uh, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, while the majority text, or the received text, as we mentioned at the beginning, is translated from nearly 6,000 manuscripts. So basically you have two copies of Scripture, two copies, um, uh, the, the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, that all the modern versions are translated from, and you have 6,000 other manuscripts that agree with each other in large part um, that the uh, what we'd have the King James and, and a few other versions that are translated out of. Um, very interesting. Uh, less than 1% of existing manuscripts support the critical text, while approximately 99% of existing manuscripts support the traditional text. Again, something to consider. Um, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about you know when an anthropologist or an archaeologist, when they're digging in various sites, right? It's amazing. They will find bone structures of people who lived some hundreds, some thousands of years ago. And it's, it's interesting because they will find a hundred bone structures that are similar but then they'll find that one that's different, right? You know, they'll, they'll find the one that maybe was off to the side or off under a, a place that was separated from the rest of them. And they'll find one that has a different shape or a different structure, a different form. And immediately it's deemed the missing link. It's claimed to be millions of years old. And clearly this is the, the missing link between humans and apes, right? Okay. And so they build an entire belief system off of one, one single uh, body structure, one single bone structure, instead of the hundreds or maybe even thousands of others that they have when it makes far more sense that someone that had an abnormality or a disfigurement some thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago would have simply been an outcast and been cast out and forced to live outside of society pushed out of the tribe if you will and uh, maybe that's why they were separated uh, from the rest. And the truth is, is they grew in the same time period. Uh, they were around the same age as each other. It's just one was different than the other. And yet, they will take the one and build an entire belief system when it comes to evolution off of the one instead of the hundreds or even thousands that we have to look at. And such is the case with the issue of the text. Some have built an entire belief system and have created versions of the Bible off of two codecs, two, two texts that they deemed older and better, rather than nearly 6,000 that agree in large part. Okay, so we have the critical text. It is perceived to be older. 
It is uh, fewer in number uh, to, to that make up the critical text. And then thirdly, the critical texts are shorter. They're shorter. Now, I'm, I'm not looking to attack the new versions because they left out or changed words. As you were, If you were to pick up some of the newer versions of the Bible, and I'm not necessarily going to call them out, but if you were to pick them up, you notice that there would be passages and verses that are just different, missing from what we, you know, the King James Version or others that are translated from the Textus Receptus. The problem is not necessarily in the heart of the individuals who did the translating. I think sometimes uh, we, we de- deem, uh, we, we assign um, uh, bad motives to those that translated some of the versions of the Scripture, when the truth is, is they took the text that they had and translated accurately from it. The problem was not necessarily with the translators, you know, and I'm sure there were some that were corrupt, but but that maybe not not necessarily was the the issue that that oftentimes gets referenced. Rather, the the problem is with the foundation that they started with the uh, the critical text. The critical text omits more than 2,800 words when compared to the Textus Receptus or the received text. That's roughly, and while some would say, well, that's not that big of a deal, 2,800 words in, in, in the entire New Testament, I mean, come on, that's not that big of a deal, but that's roughly the equivalence of First and Second Peter's entirety, <laughs> two whole books of the Bible uh, completely. Um, now, obviously, it's not just those two, it's scattered throughout, but that's important. That's, that's a big deal. There are entire passages that are just completely gone when it comes to the critical text. And that's important for us to understand um, that some of the translations translated from a text that just don't have verses that are found in the 6,000 other uh, editions of the, that were used to form the received text, um, which is very important. That's why it is considerably shorter. So we, we've looked at some interesting historical facts about the text I want to I want to look next at the two different textual methods, and this maybe is is along with the historical things one of the most important things to to understand. The received text comes was translated in a formal equivalency. A formal equivalency. What does that mean? Well, it's also called verbal equivalency. It's a process of translating in which both the words and the forms of the words were rendered as closely as possible from Hebrew and Greek, from Greek into English. Uh, that's that's what uh, was attempted. They tried to take the exact words, uh, the exact phrase, the exact verse in English, and they took each word and tried to translate it as accurately as possible. Now, anybody that, that studies languages know knows that whenever you are translating from one language to another, that there are times that you have to add a word or two there to make make sense of the sentence and things like that. And in the King James Bible, particularly when they did that, they, they put it in italics so that you can see when they added words to make sense of the sentence. But to the best of their ability, uh, the, the received text was a formal equivalency. The translation from the received text were a formal equivalency, a literal word-for-word word, translation. Whereas the critical text is a dynamic equivalency. A dynamic equivalency. Again, um, this this is different. It's a process of translating that attempts to interpret and convey the intent of the message or the passage and the thoughts of his source rather than the literal words. So instead of a word-for-word translation uh, into uh, 
English into our language, they would take it and they'd say, okay, here's the idea of the passage, and they would put the idea there. It's like uh, taking the writings of Shakespeare, and uh, particularly one of my favorites, I, if you know me, I, I don't read Shakespeare, but uh, one, one in particular, I've heard this before, but said, what light through yonder window breaks? I know that's, that for some it probably touches a heartstring when we uh, start to quote poetry, but uh, what light through yonder window breaks? What, what beauty? Uh, and Shakespeare, we know, was written around the same time as the King James Version of the Bible. What light through yonder window breaks? And taking that and applying the dynamic equivalency to it, changing it to our language today, and simply changing it to who turned the light on. All right, or uh, well, look at the light through the window. You know, it just totally changing it. Now, while I might believe that is a better rendition, and uh, uh, as as I'm not uh, that that much into uh, uh, Shakespearean literature, um, and and it would be easier for me to understand that in Shakespeare. It's amazing. Uh, while I would believe that that there are those who love Shakespeare, who would treat it as heresy. They'd say, well, you can't do that. You're taking away from the meaning of the words. You're taking away from the power that is in those words that Shakespeare wrote. What light through yonder window break? Um, And so, interesting. So, with that thought in mind, it leads us to the final question. Why, why does this matter? The dynamic equivalency, the, the um, formal equivalency, why, why does it matter, the received text versus the critical text? Why, why does this matter? Well, just like someone would hold so passionately, and they'd say, well, it's Shakespeare's words, how much more when it's God's words? I mean, these are the words of God. Shouldn't we treat them far more reverently than, than what we would treat Shakespeare's words. Uh, just amazing. Uh, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 30, verse number 5, every word of God is pure. He's a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. In Matthew 4, 4, we've referenced this before in our previous studies, but Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This is important. This is vital. Listen, I don't just want the thoughts that the Lord had. I want to know His very words, every word that He said. That's why this is so important. That's why this is vital to understand. Now, I've had people ask me, well, what what Bibles are out there that were translations from the Textus Receptus, from the received text. Kyle, if you really believe that the Textus Receptus, the received text, is better than the critical text, and and really at the end of the day, I would say that is my position that I would hold to, that I would take, is that there are, it's not necessarily an issue of which is better in the alphabet soup of versions of the Bible. It's, It's a question of which text is supreme. And I believe clearly there is one text that is that is supreme over the other, and that would be the received text, the, 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 the textus receptus. Uh, that, that should be the one that should be translated from. So what versions of the Bible are translated from the textus receptus? Well, while we could go on for hours on the critical text, um, there are a number of textus receptus translations. Um, but it's a much more refined, much more condensed list. Uh, the first one that we'll mention is the Tyndale New Testament. It was from 1526 to 1530s when that was recorded, the Tyndale New Testament. Then you have the Coverdale Bible in 1535, the Matthew Bible in 1537, 
the Great Bible in 1539, the Geneva Bible from 1560 to 1644, the Bishop's Bible uh, from 1568, the King James Version of the Bible. Again, translated in 1611, and then as we saw a couple of weeks ago, um, also uh, we have the one that we would use, uh, that I would hold in my hand today, the 1769 edition, where there were changes to some of those words. The Quaker Bible, 1764. The Webster Bible, 1833. The Young's Literal Translation, 1862. And finally, the not finally, but the New King James Bible in 1975. And this that's an interesting one. And all of these you could study more in depth, but the, the New King James in particular, just because it's such a hot one that many people use today, it is primarily translated from the Textus Receptus. But uh, in order for Thomas Nelson to be able to um, to put his stamp of uh, and to copyright his version of the Bible, and the New King James is copyrighted, whereas the King James is not. Uh, the New King James was copyrighted. In order to do, to do that, I believe, I forget exactly, but there had to be something like 15% or 20% of the Bible changed to be able to make it their own. And whenever they made those changes, many times they referenced the critical text. This is, this is an interesting thing. And, and many of the newer, the, the older ones the, that are closer to the original 1975, they actually would put a note next to it. I believe it was an RU where they would say that they referenced the critical text um, in the New King Version of the Bible where many today have actually just dropped that completely and uh, they just have uh, the standard New King James. But that's important to understand that. Um, again, if you're wanting to, to be close to the originals. And then finally, the modern English version, which was translated in 2014. You know, ultimately, the best thing that you and I could do is to, to go out and learn Greek. I mean, I know that's, that's not what you want to do, but I, I would just encourage you to go learn Greek. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that, that, that would be the best way to do it, and then go back and actually read the, the, origi- the, the Greek manuscripts. <clears throat> that would be ideal, but... Since I can't fluently read Greek, and I'm sure you can't either, I want to study and to read from a Bible that is as close to the very words of God in the English language as possible. We mentioned a few weeks back when we looked at the comments from the King James Bible translators that it wasn't that they didn't believe that the Bibles that existed weren't, in fact, God's Word, but rather they were trying to make a good translation better. Uh, you know, the, as we just mentioned, the King James Bible wasn't translated by them until 1604 to 1611. There was a number of other Bibles that were translated before. In fact, I, I know people that use the Geneva Bible today um, and, and some of the other versions as well. But the, that's, it wasn't that they were looking and saying, well, listen, hey, the, the, the Tyndale New Testament or the Coverdale or the Matthews, the Great Bible, the Geneva, the Bishop, they weren't looking at those saying, those weren't the Word of God. Let me show you what it is. Uh, that's, that's not true at all because God is, has, has preserved His Word for us. And so that's not what they were saying uh, at all, that those weren't. They, what they were saying was those are God's Word, and we are trying our best to take uh, the original manuscripts of the Textus Receptus and, and translate them into a language that's understandable for all to be able to read and to, to understand. Uh, that was what they were trying to do. But as with our Bible study, we must keep things 
historically in context. You study the Bible, you, we, all, we, we say it over and over again here at our church. You've got to keep things in context. Keep things in context. Listen, just like you got to read your Bible in context, we have to keep things historically in context. When they made those comments about uh, the versions of the Bible, uh, I guess you could say, or the copies of the Bible, and some were better, and they wanted it so that every person could read it and things like that, what's important for us to remember here is they were referring to other versions that have been translated from the received text, not the critical text, because there weren't other versions from the critical text. They held to the belief that there was a text that was supreme compared to others. And that's why at Whitehall Baptist Church, we hold to the King James Bible that it contains the preserved and inspired perfect word of God. His, his words, his very words. And, and listen, we won't be mean-spirited about those that different, uh, differ in, in what version that they use. I, I'm not looking to attack anybody whatsoever. That's not at all the, the intention of tonight. God and his sovereignty has, has used other versions in people's lives for them to be saved and to grow. And so I'm not saying that you can't be saved or God can't use a different version, a modern version that was translated from the critical text to, to, to work in your life. That's not at all what I'm saying here. But what I am getting at is that there's a difference between the received text and the critical text. And I would hold that one is better than the other. See, growing up, I can remember uh, drinking Bubba Cola and Mountain Lightning. I mean, that was always, it was often in our house. Bubba Cola and Mountain Lightning. I can remember uh, cracking one of those guys open and drinking it as a teenager. And, and uh, you know, I mean, just, I mean, that was, I was all about that. But, but can I just be honest with you? If I had my choice between Bubba Cola and Mountain Lightning, I would go with the original Coke and Mountain Dew. <laughs> because, uh, listen, you just can't compare to the original. You just can't compare to, to the real thing. And when it comes to God's Word, listen, I want as close to the original as I can get. There's no one that will ever pick up a literal original copy of the writings of Paul or the writings of Peter because they were destroyed. They don't exist anymore. But man, oh man, I want as close to what their actual hand to that paper was. I want as close of the mind and mouth of God working through those arms and the hands of those people that wrote those words as possible. I want the very words of God. And that is why we will continue here at our church to preach and to study from the King James Version of the Bible, translated from the original Textus Receptus, word for word, literal, formal equivalency, 6,000 manuscripts compared together to form what we have today as the received text. And that is why I choose and our church will choose to use the King James Version of the Bible. Again, we're not out there to be hateful to anybody. I'm not looking at to, to go out and tear somebody down or to hurt somebody else that, that maybe uses a different version of the Bible. That's not at all what, what we're trying to do. But what we are saying is as closely as possible, we want to know not just the thoughts of God. We want to know the very words of God. And in the Textus Receptus, I believe that is the superior 
the supreme text. And from it, we have the wonderful King James Bible. Father, thank you for tonight, the opportunity to open your word. I pray, Lord, that many tonight would be strengthened in their beliefs of the scriptures, that they would know you in a more powerful and a deep way. I pray, God, that I know there's some that this is probably going to strike a nerve and, and there's going to be some that are going to be frustrated and hurt over this. I just pray, God, that you would intervene, your Holy Spirit would intervene where I cannot. Lord, that you would, you would show my spirit and my heart behind this. Lord, is to, is to simply uh, share what you have showed me from, from what I have studied. And I pray, God, that this would just that much more encourage people within our church and others that are listening to dive into the Scriptures, to know the Word of God as powerfully and as passionately as they can. Lord, I thank you that you did give your Word to, to us and you've given it to us. Lord, you've preserved your Word through the generations. And God, when I hold this the scripture in my hand. I can know that I'm, I'm looking at, I'm reading the very words of God, and I thank you for that. Thank you, God, for what you have done. And God, I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.